From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Dave Pantos, who is running for Douglas County Attorney. I feel like the county attorney's office can be a leader when it comes to preventing crime, to being smart on crime, and addressing those root causes. A lot of that is education, getting into the schools, and also addressing risk factors that manifest in healthcare, food insecurity, uh, housing insecurity, and I feel like the county attorney's office has a direct role in leading that coordinated response to those issues. So we can be smart on crime, so we can prevent crime. We talk about Pantos's upbringing, his worldview, and his vision for Douglas County. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Dave Pantos. Pantos served as executive director of Legal Aid in Nebraska, ran several congressional campaigns, teaches law and policy at the University of Nebraska, and he's currently running for Douglas County attorney against incumbent Don Klein. Here's our conversation. All right. So, Dave, welcome to the show. I mean, you and I have we've sort of met each other occasionally here and there over the past few years uh, through things that you're involved with, things I'm involved with. Um, but I, I don't actually know a lot about you outside of the context of the causes that you care about. So I want to start just with a, a question I ask a lot of guests on here. But are you are you from Nebraska originally? Sure. And uh, Tom, thanks for having me on. I am originally from the Garden State, New Jersey, uh, and moved to Nebraska in 2006. Uh, so I've been here since then. Um Practice as a lawyer for 25 years um, and uh, been practicing here since 2006. So New Jersey seems pretty different from Nebraska as just sort of a general atmosphere, culture. What was what was it like growing up there? Sure. So I grew up in the 70s and 80s as a kid and uh, very much suburban in the uh, – penumbra of New York City. And uh, so most of uh, kids that I grew up with had, you know, probably usually a dad who worked um, in or around New York City, like my dad, he commuted into Manhattan every morning, um, took a bus from my town all the way in there. And uh, yeah, so that was pretty much the situation. and uh, so I went to public high school and uh, state university in New Jersey. Um, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. You know, weekends we would go to the Jersey Shore. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a good, good place to grow up. Was, was your family political? I don't think so. No, you know, I mean, it was definitely the 1980s were... I think in a lot of ways, a lot less political time um, for sure in terms of just the day to day, you know, and I think that's very much a pre social media time. Um, But yeah, my folks were not overtly political. I mean, honestly, I didn't even know who they voted for in state or national elections at all um, until more recently. It's interesting that you say social media is what leads us maybe to our, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I struggle. It's tough sometimes to think because I, I don't know if it's just awareness or how it's tough for me as well, just as further you go back in the past to try to really compare that to what seems really new and scary today and what maybe has always just been scary. But do you think we were really less political in the eighties? Um, I mean, I think people were probably as personally politically engaged as they are today, but they were just less vocal about it. I think um, there was, it was just less of a thing that you would bring up um, in casual conversation. I remember 
1980, um, I had to, I think this was kind of like a elementary school project, which is weird. Like you were supposed to ask your family who they were voting for in the 1980 election. Um, and, you know, most people didn't want to talk about it. Um, it was like a very private kind of thing. Like, oh, you know, this is a decision between me and the ballot box. And, you know, uh, you didn't really wear who you were voting for on your sleeve as much. Um, and I, I see that now, too. I mean, having worked in some political campaigns, um, you know, you didn't really see as many yard signs back then. Um, certainly people weren't, you know, didn't have an outlet to post um, who they were voting for, or what side they were on um, back then. And, uh, you know, now you, you see that all the time. You have ballot selfies and things like that. And that didn't really exist back then. That's interesting. I mean, so do you think, what, what, what do you attribute that to? Why did it become this sort of part of our cultural identities to share that and to make it so prevalent in our lives, who we vote for, who we support, et cetera? Well, I think there's certainly been a, a, a realignment in terms of political identity and cultural identity and geographic identity um, that, you know, and I'm not suggesting I just am the one who came up with this. I mean, folks are definitely talking about this, how people are now relocating based on, on political identification, et cetera. Um, and you certainly didn't see that um, 30 years ago, for sure. Um, but we definitely see that a lot now. Um, you know, and, it, and it's weird because I, I don't mean to suggest that political parties themselves are uh, getting stronger. You know, you don't necessarily have direct participation with parties at a, at a huge amount. I, I think you had that probably much more so, you know, in the 1800s. Um, or even as far back as the 1950s. Uh, but we were definitely in a world of um, negative partisanship, uh, where in some ways you define yourself as what you're opposed to more so than what you're for. Um, and uh, I think we definitely see that a lot in terms of voting um, currently. Definitely. Well, okay, so we'll, we'll circle back to politics uh, as we get further into this. But to go back to sort of the story, I know, uh, I think it's a common theme among people who are encouraged to get law degrees when they're younger is sort of that they were often pretty opinionated kids. And maybe their families sometimes get tired of arguing with them and say, you know, you should be a lawyer. It's sort of like it turns into this constructive way to sort of shut down conversations where basically there are some kids who like to debate and they like to talk about the issues and they like to get into it all. And, they, you know, families try to figure out, OK, how can we channel this? So were you that type of kid? Yeah, I don't think it was um, I don't think it was something driven by my folks. I remember as far back as sixth grade having decided that I wanted to go to law school. And uh, I think it must have just been, oh, here's this thing I like to do, which is I like to speak in front of groups. Um, yeah, maybe more opinionated than the average sixth grader. Uh, this seems like a thing that makes sense. And obviously, yeah, if you're a kid and say, oh, here's what I want to do when I grow up, I want to be a lawyer, most of the time, adults or parents aren't going to say, oh, that's a bad idea. Or you're not going to make any money doing that. So um, it's never something that's discouraged. And there's a pretty clear path in front of you uh, if you want to do that. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm not sure exactly what triggered it. Was it like, um, you know, the first season of L.A. Law? I'm not even sure what it was. Um, but, um, yeah, it's just something I feel like I've wanted to do since as far back as I remember. So, I mean, have you always been extroverted? Not many sixth graders are over fear of talking in front of groups about real issues. Yeah, I mean, I was I was a class president in sixth grade. I remember that. So there was something there. Um, yeah, I think, you know, maybe just growing up as an only child uh, kind of had some connection with being more extroverted and wanting to reach out and engage with other people and participate in things and, uh, you know, try to communicate, communicate with others and contribute to, you know, the broader kind of society around you, 
you know, circumscribed as it might have been, at, you know, when you're 12 or 13 years old. Um, but yeah, I've always been someone who's liked to join up to collaborate with or work with other people on something bigger than just myself. And I think that's why I've gravitated towards nonprofit work, uh, serving on nonprofit boards, um, and uh, just working with others to kind of just move the ball forward on, you know, whatever issue is seems to be most important. Do you remember what some of those promises were to your sixth grade peers when you were running for office? <laughs> you know, just integrity, fairness, and transparency. Um, <laughs> just like what I'm doing today. It's all, it's the same. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, so I guess it, it seems like you were somebody who was interested in a sort of broad array of topics. Like, I, you, know, you mentioned that TV is probably the easiest place for kids to really get a sense of a lawyer, but it's almost always in that sort of like crime vein, which isn't the type of law you mm -hmm. went into. So, I mean, how did you go about deciding what type of law you wanted to practice and what types of opportunities there even were in that arena? Yeah, no, I think you make a really good point that the concept of what a lawyer actually has to do on a day-to-day -day is entirely abstract. Um, what's presented for the most part in media, and I think even for the most part today, it's just that performative, um, dramatic courtroom scene, um, whether it's a civil case or a criminal case. Um, and you know, most of being a lawyer actually involves a lot of interpersonal skills and negotiation, mediation, uh, trying to um, accomplish something um, where you can get the issue resolved before you go in front of a judge. Uh, because when you go in front of a judge or you go in front of a jury, that's where all the risk is and all the uncertainty is. Um, so um, a lot of it really is that sort of interpersonal um, relationship and uh, um, those kind of soft skills and trying to uh, get what you need to get for your your client or the organization you're representing um, before you are thrown into that sort of risk and uncertainty of a of a courtroom. Um, so you know, I think certainly uh, growing up, I, I always felt like, well, I want to do this. I want to be a lawyer because I feel like being a lawyer um, gives you the power to be an agent for change in your community uh, for sure. And I wasn't sure what that was as a kid necessarily, um, <clears throat> like what exactly my path would be. Um, and it didn't really become a little bit more clearer until I got older. Uh, but I, I always felt like it was connected to public service one way or another, that it wasn't just to get in there and, you know, make six figures or seven figures. Um, it was about like, okay, here's a tool that I can use to work with others to make a difference for the better. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Dave Pantos, who is currently running for Douglas County Attorney. Join the conversation in our Letter to the Editor feature, where you can call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week. Leave a brief voicemail at 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. And so, I mean, what were some of the ways that you started to do that then as you began your law career? Sure. So my first a uh, full-time job out of law school was um, <clears throat> working in a small law firm in Denver, Colorado, uh, doing litigation on behalf of injured and disabled workers. Um, mostly it's you know commonly known as workers' comp or workers' compensation. Uh, so that was my first real experience in doing trials was uh, a full caseload almost of, right off the bat of people who had been hurt at work and for one reason or another, their claim was being denied or they weren't getting the health benefits they were supposed to be getting or the disability payments that they were supposed to be getting. And so it was a lot of kind of like uh, learning about individual stories, like how their being injured impacted their lives, how it prevented them from being able to, you know, uh, install drywall or, uh, you know, work on a transformer box or whatever kind of work they were doing uh, prior to their injury. And then also kind of quickly learning medical terminology 
And, you know, I did have some of a background also having a master's of science in addition to a law degree. Uh, so I was a little bit familiar with, with kind of scientific terminology and, and uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was kind of interesting because it had those different elements where I was like, okay, you know, at the end of the day, here's someone who came to me, you know, with no income, you know, in a lot of pain physically or mentally. And uh, at the end, they're, you know, they've got some kind of settlement, maybe they're back at some other job, because they were able to get health care because of the work I did, I'm making a difference. And kind of along the same time, I did a fair amount of volunteer work uh, for something called the National Lawyers Guild. And we were working on this huge case in southern Colorado that actually goes back to the 1850s, 1860s. Um, so when uh, the United States acquired Colorado after the Mexican-American War, there were a lot of treaties that um, were signed. Um, and as part of that, there was this huge tract of land in southern Colorado, uh, like 70,000 acres, that um, the owner of the land said, you know, even though this is no longer part of Mexico, I want this land to still be used by these Mexican-American people who are now you know, part of the United States. You know, they should still be able to use this land for uh, fishing, hunting, recreational purposes. Um, <clears throat> and that was the case for 100 years. Um, and then in the uh, 1960s, the great-grandson of President Zachary Taylor, maybe great-great-grandson of President Zachary Taylor, purchased the land and filed a uh, massive uh, quiet title action uh, to kick out all the people that have been using this land um, almost communally for 100 years. Um, and he did not publish the notices in Spanish. Uh, it was kind of done quietly, and uh, he got the uh, the decision he wanted, uh, but never really enforced it. And it didn't start getting enforced until the 1980s. And uh, when his, uh, I think, son or grandson started putting up fencing and these folks that were being able to use this land for, again, for decades and decades and decades were getting kicked out. Um, so that kind of made its way to Denver uh, and a bunch of lawyers were like, hey, that doesn't seem right. So they filed uh, an action to undo that work um, or undo that um, restriction and it went all the way up to the Colorado Supreme Court. Uh, Supreme Court sent it back and said, there's something here. Um, and the big issue was, could all of these um, different Mexican-Americans file as a class? Because if you can file a class action, it's a much more powerful tool than just a bunch of individuals having to scramble on their own. And so my job was to uh, write up the big amicus brief to the Colorado Court of Appeals to get um, approved as a class and uh, it was successful. And so that was super exciting. Um, but yeah, it was this 150 year old case uh, that I got to work on. And so that kind of inspired me to maybe look at my career as being something more than just, you know, representing ind individual clients, but also making a, an impact uh, with the work I was doing. And then, um, then soon after that, uh, I moved to back to New Jersey and started working full-time in a legal aid capacity. And that's, uh, you know, I think I've kind of kept on that path ever since. Well, so, I mean, it seems like you, you've had a lot of opportunities to immerse yourself in the ways, the sort of intentional ways that our systems are built and in some ways the ways that they're, the, the maneuvering that needs to happen to adjust those systems, but then also to maybe right certain wrongs. And so it sounds like the kind of thing that brought you to this career in the first place uh, is it's probably your idea of what you can do being broadened also connects very well with the idea of connecting that with political campaigns, right? And so, I mean, how, how did... Absolutely. Where where did that enter in? Were you also working on uh, political campaigns when you were doing all this, or did that come later as you get closer to, you know, the last five, ten years? Yeah, you know, I mean, I've always been interested in politics, um, but I didn't work in a campaign in a professional capacity until um, uh, 2017. Um, 
when, you know, I think what happened for me and happened for a lot of folks, and I'll just be frank about this, uh, when Donald Trump was elected president, um, you know, I had been working at a nonprofit at that time uh, as an executive director. And, uh, you know, it was um, a day of many alarm bells, like, wow, you know, I need to reconsider what I'm doing with my life because this is, was such a significant and profound uh, perversion of the public sphere. Um, so I decided after he was elected that I would try to work more in the political context. Um, and um, so this was, again, you know, late 2016, early 2017. Um, so the first thing I did was uh, there was an opening on the Metropolitan Community College Board of Governors uh, because an elected uh, member uh, right after his election uh, tragically passed away. Uh, I took his seat. So here I was on a, you know, on a board that's publicly elected. And then um, soon after that, uh, a good friend of mine, Carter Eastman, decided to run for U.S. Congress and asked me to work on her campaign helping to raise money. And uh, so, yeah, I, I went from being very much in the nonprofit world and uh, serving folks that way to a more active uh, political role. Uh, and again, largely inspired by the fact that I felt like, wow, I need to, uh, and a lot of people, again, did the same thing, um, jump into politics because uh, we are in danger of our democracy uh, slipping away. And uh, so that's, that was a big transition for me, for sure. Well, so let's, let's use this as a way to segue what you're here to talk about today, which is that you're running for Douglas County attorney. And I have a, mm -hmm. a basic question, which is, I don't know that a lot of people think about some of these jobs. And I think actually, we're at this stage where, at least in the current era, there was a lot of complacency and sort of a lack of awareness of the positions that aren't at the top. Uh, and I don't think that unless there's a reason to think about who is in certain positions, like the, the county attorney, a lot of people just are fine to sort of either not vote for it or vote for whoever's the incumbent, whoever's on the ballot, right, whatever name's on there. So I, I want to make it clear, what exactly is a county attorney? What are the duties of that position? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, it speaks to the fact that Nebraska, uh, one of the great things about Nebraska is that there are so many positions you get to vote for. Um, growing up in New Jersey, and it's still the case, uh, for the most part, you know, you vote for governor and the governor appoints everything. The governor appoints the attorney general uh, and all these other positions, secretary of state, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, here in Nebraska, we, we are privileged to be able to vote for all sorts of offices. We vote for secretary of state. We vote for auditor. And locally speaking, we vote for you know, OPPD board and NRD board and Metropolitan Community College board, uh, learning community, so many different things we get to vote for, which is a great privilege. But it's also the big risk is it gets kind of lost. There are these marquee races like governor and Congress and president, and then everything else is, quote unquote, down ballot. But these are all super important positions. And uh, certainly Douglas County attorney is is a position that yeah, a lot of folks don't even realize you get to vote for, uh, but it's a very important position because that position is, um, I think, probably the most significant and important uh, public attorney position in the entire state because of the fact that uh, it has a lot of power, a lot of discretion, and obviously Douglas is the largest county in Nebraska. Well, so, I mean, like, what are the types of things, though? So if, if I'm trying to explain it to somebody, what's the difference between any attorney and the county attorney or the county prosecutor? What, what does it entail? Sure. So primarily the county attorney is the chief uh, prosecutor and leads an office of um, deputy attorneys who uh, prosecute crimes in Douglas County. Uh, in addition, the county attorney represents the county 
uh, in any civil suits or civil matters and advises the county board um, on legal matters. And also the office serves as the coroner for the county, uh, which is interesting. A lot of folks don't know that. Uh, but primarily the uh, major part is, uh, uh, is prosecuting um, or deciding on what crimes to prosecute or prosecuting crimes um, within Douglas County. Um, so that's the big part of the office. And uh, there are approximately 60 deputy county attorneys um, and staff. So it's a huge office um, with um, a lot of uh, work, both in terms of felonies um, like murders and, and uh, violent crimes, as well as uh, domestic violence matters um, and uh, everything in between. I'm talking with Dave Pantos, who is currently running for Douglas County Attorney against incumbent Don Klein. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Book clubs are fun for a lot of reasons. They're an excuse to read something new, something you might not have picked up on your own. They are a great opportunity to visit with friends. But what if you could invite the smartest, most insightful people you can think of to have a candid conversation about a great book? That's what I get to do on the Talk of Iowa Book Club and you're invited. He really was able to convey the message in a way that gets to your heartstrings. We can really see that he is a scientist, but he's also a person who loves what he is studying. He's a scholar and a humanist, and, and I think that's his greatest achievement. And then it's like punch, punch, oh my gosh, what? So you have this like visceral, emotional connection to the poem, and it's because of the way He's linguistically playing with language. Let's talk about sex, because, of course, in the original book... Um, <laughs> Stan and I have always longed for someone to <laughs> say that to both of us on the radio. <laughs> A dream come true. Yeah, All right. thank you. All right. The Talk of Iowa Book Club podcast coming soon from Iowa Public Radio. It's time to start reading. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. And please leave us a review. Join the conversation in our Letter to the Editor feature, where you can call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week. Leave a brief voicemail at 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. I'm talking today with Dave Pantos, who is currently running for Douglas County Attorney against incumbent Don Klein. Here's the rest of our conversation. Well, and a lot of people, I think, paid attention to this position uh, in the last couple of years because uh, Don Klein, who's the current Douglas County Attorney, made a lot of waves uh particularly in his decision not to press charges against Jake Gardner, who fatally shot James Skurlock during the George Floyd protests in uh, 2020. Um, And so shortly after that, uh, a grand jury and special prosecutor did charge Gardner with four counts of manslaughter, attempted first-degree assault, terroristic threats, and use of a firearm in connection with a felony. So, I mean, a, a pretty different outcome, and I believe Klein said basically that he would stand by his original decision, but he went on to leave the Democratic Party after being criticized for handling that case, and he joined the Republican Party in a highly publicized celebration attended by Pete Ricketts, Deb Fisher, Don Bacon, Gene Stothard, you know, basically all the, the big Republicans in the state right now. And, uh, right. well, so w- w- my question kind of about that is, 
You know, Don Bacon has bragged about this on Twitter as a huge ideological victory for the GOP. And it seems like kind of a scary sign that some of the culturally loudest voices we have aren't really they don't seem to be uh, even pretending that they want impartiality in courts as opposed to sort of a philosophy of get let's get our guy in there because he'll do what we want. And so, I mean, right. how, how, what's your take on this idea? I mean, or, or the, the climate, I guess we have where it's like there's a democratic or a Republican rule of law. And maybe we're not too concerned about the, the overlap in that Venn diagram of just what should be the law in general. Well, I agree a hundred percent with your concern. And certainly my goal, um, when I'm elected to this position is to make it a nonpartisan position again. I mean, yes, I am running as a Democrat because on the ballot, it's, you know, you have to run as a Democrat or a Republican. And, uh, you know, I am a Democrat, but I think that the Douglas County attorney needs to be nonpartisan. And I do agree with you that the event in 2020, when uh, the incumbent had his press conference and loudly uh, switched parties to the Republican Party, endorsed Donald Trump, um, and like you said, um, made it a very, very partisan uh, race or or a a partisan event um, where you had um, leaders of the Republican Party crowing about um, this big get. I mean, that was... uh, that was, I think, uh, a significant threat to our court system, to um, perceptions of fairness in the county attorney's office. And uh, I think it was unfair to the voters, too. I mean, all the folks that voted for Don Klein in past elections uh, because he was on the Democratic slate, um, surprise, surprise, he was actually a Republican. Um, and um you know, so I think for for all those reasons, uh, it, you know, a position um, again that's voted for on a partisan ballot, uh, but that should be run as a nonpartisan office became highly partisan. Um, sure, you know, if he's going to switch parties, um, or you know, maybe not be so active in the Democratic Party or become independent, independent or what have you. You know, that's one thing, but to do a press conference like that with the Republican leadership, um, I mean, that just communicates one thing is that uh, he sees it as being a partisan office and that uh, and um, he wanted to communicate that. And, you know, my goal is to departisan that office and, again, be fair, transparent and committed to uh, serving the community uh, under the principle of equal justice under the law. It seems difficult to navigate that in our very polarized world right now because members of opposing parties increasingly seem to see anything the other does as illegitimate or wrong or misguided just based on sort of these tribal lines. And so, I mean, how do you go about while being affiliated with the Democratic Party making it something that can function in a nonpartisan way? Yeah, I think you do it through your or I'm going to do it through words and actions and, and being a nonpartisan leader of that office, working um, in collaboration with um, obviously other folks in the criminal justice system, uh, as well as other parts of the community, healthcare, education, social services, et cetera, to focus on being smart on crime and, and working to prevent crime and get at the root causes of crime. And I think there will be uh, willing participants um, from all uh, walks of life and all uh, sides of the aisle um, to do that. And I think you need to be that person. And certainly work that I've done throughout my career uh, has involved reaching across the aisle. And certainly, you know, like when I served on the Metropolitan Community College Board of Governors. I mean, we had Democrats and Republicans there and, you know, most of our votes were unanimous and uh, we were, we all shared a passion for um, Metro and uh, its mission. Um, And I think, you know, I can find partners who are committed to uh, making our criminal justice system more effective, 
more transparent, uh, focused on public safety and uh, addressing some of these huge issues of um, uh, public safety and prison overcrowding, et cetera. I mean, I think there's, again, folks on all sides of the aisle who want to work on that and, and want to do so in a nonpartisan way. Well, so do you think there's a way to make the political conversations we have and the races we run, I mean, to, to sort of de-escalate the fact that it's advantageous to be extremely partisan, depending on where you are? Like, I know it's a it's a purple district, but I'm sure in your experience running, uh, especially the Car Eastman campaigns, I mean, Don Bacon ran pretty blatantly partisan uh, attack ads pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. And they were... You know, the pictures of a city on fire saying Comrade Cara will destroy America, things like that. And, you know, the thing is, stuff like that can work. And so I can see why the basic argument is, even if someone like Don Bacon doesn't care that much about being partisan, if it's effective, it's effective. So, I mean, I think even though ideologically a lot of people are happy to say that maybe it's not a great way to run a a campaign that dehumanizes or demonizes, uh, you know, it's if it gets the result, it gets the results. So, I mean, how, do you think there's a way to, to sort of change that to get people to try to have uh, an outward respect for each other, even if it's not the easy, cheap way to get votes? I do think so. I think certainly what you're talking about is a huge problem. And a lot of it is actually driven, uh, not entirely, but it's driven by these um, uh, political actions committees that come in and spend millions of dollars uh, in local races or congressional races, and 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 they have that impact. Uh, that's why I'm, you know, saying no to uh, corporate political action committee money, um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm hoping that outside groups stay out of this race. I think a lot of the the ads you saw in 2020 targeting Cara were from, um, were from out of state. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that um, our incumbent congressman didn't tacitly endorse those, um, <clears throat> but I don't think he was driving that. Um, I think it's a lot of outside money pushing for that. And uh, that's why I want to focus on local issues, local voters, talking to voters directly, talking to voters who are Republican, independent, Democrat, libertarian, um, et cetera. Um, about issues that we can, you know, all get behind. Uh, I don't think certainly some of the stuff that we need to do to reform the system, um, I think instinctively people get, understand, and support. Um, but you do have to uh, talk about it a bit because it's not something that um, is on everyone's mind, although certainly prison overcrowding is is a huge issue that a lot of folks are talking about. Uh, but I think you can get there. I think by running a local race and uh, running a race where, again, you're engaging with voters one-on-one, uh, whether it's on the phone um, or in person, hopefully we'll be able to do more of that once the current Omicron surge uh, recedes. Um, you know, that's how you get there. You just have these local conversations about these local issues and uh, try to screen out the outside uh, political action committee money that comes in. And like you said, um, gins up the worst of the worst in terms of scaremongering and fear tactics. Um, Yeah. Well, so on your site, you write that a change you'd bring to this office is that, quote, many prosecutors focus on obtaining convictions and securing severe prison sentences instead of addressing the root causes of crime. So what, what does it look like to address the root causes of crime? Yeah. And, uh, you know, inspiring that uh, platform for me, and I feel like it's been vindicated by a lot of the recent reporting, um, both in uh, the World Herald uh, the Flatwater Free Press and others, uh, you know, they're pointing the finger at a lot of these mandatory minimum uh, sentencing issues. And uh, I did a, you know, like a 45 minute long Facebook Live with uh, another expert um, on this issue of mandatory minimums. I think, so what's, what we know, what the science tells us is that The threat of a long sentence is not a deterrent to crime. Uh, Certainly the threat of an arrest 
is a deterrent to crime, but a threat of a long sentence is not a deterrent to crime. But what do we get as a result of these mandatory minimums and long sentences? We have 100, we have prisons that are at 150% um, capacity. Uh, we've now exceeded Alabama in terms of prison overcrowding. Um, and as a result of prison overcrowding and uh, prison staffing shortages, uh, two major problems. One, we're spending more and more money every year on overtime and trying to recruit new staff to staff our prisons, um, which is a huge burden on the taxpayer. And then also because we don't have enough staff, uh, we're running short in terms of programming for folks who are incarcerated. And because of that lack of programming, when folks are released, they're actually more likely uh, to reoffend. So we have a huge increase in recidivism, um, like 15, 20% increase, which is um, also out of step with other states. Um, so it becomes uh, a public safety crisis. Um, and I feel like that crisis can be laid uh, at the feet of the current county attorney because um, he's the one who continues to push for mandatory minimums and uh, harsh sentencing. And, and again, you know, I agree with everyone in terms of, you know, if it's a violent crime, um, you know, that person should be incarcerated, no question. The, the issue is when you get to nonviolent offenders, first time offenders, um, where the risk of reoffending is low and we could maybe divert folks into uh, programs that can, um, you know, they could work with them and try to address uh those issues working on reentry issues investing in uh kind of wraparound services to make sure folks don't reoffend but also and getting back to your question about addressing the root causes of crime you know let's get into the schools let's get into healthcare let's get with social services um i feel like the county attorney's office can be a leader when it comes to preventing crime to being smart on crime and addressing those root causes a lot of that is in education um, getting into the schools um, and also addressing risk factors that manifest in healthcare, care um, you know food food insecurity uh, housing um, insecurity you know i i'm in eviction court every week uh, helping tenants and i can tell you there's a direct connection between economic insecurity, housing insecurity, food insecurity, health um, insecurity, and crime. And uh, I think a lot of that stuff can be identified in the schools. And I feel like the county attorney's office has a direct role in leading uh, that coordinated response to those issues. So we can be smart on crime. So we can prevent crime. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Dave Pantos, who is currently running for Douglas County attorney. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Another prevalent issue on your campaign site is how charges related to marijuana are handled. So, I mean, what makes that a priority for you? What brought you to that topic as something that needs a lot of reform? Well, you know, first of all, obviously, nationally, there's a trend in most other states uh, to decriminalize marijuana um, and uh um, legalize. Uh, so I feel like Nebraska is definitely out of step there. Uh, but, you know, I think while reasonable people can agree or disagree as to whether or not marijuana should be legal, uh, I think the data is very clear that prosecutions as it relates to drug possession um, are highly discriminatory. And the fact is, is that I think that marijuana possession charges and uh, prosecutions um, are a big driver for the fact that we have um, huge racial disparities um, in our prisons. Um, I think the stat that I saw recently was that um, even though um, only one out of 25 people in Nebraska are of color, um, one out of five prisoners are of color. So that's a huge ratio there. 
Uh, I think a lot of that's driven by uh, drug prosecutions. And that's why I feel like we need to really look at that. Um, so even if you if you disagree on legalization or what have you, you have to agree that there's a huge problem if the way that folks are being prosecuted is leading to this sort of huge racial disparity in terms of incarceration. Uh, so that's a big driver for me. So I mean, with that one in particular, uh, when we think about the national conversation on marijuana and the Nebraska conversation, I know that's uh, a pet issue for Governor Pete Ricketts, who really, really seems to feel strongly about the continued criminalization of marijuana. So, I mean, how do you sometimes mm-hmm. juggle something like that where you you have a feeling that is right and maybe it's aligned with a national trend, but also it is a fairly red state and there's a governor who does like to pick fights with Omaha officials pretty frequently. I mean, is that something you put in the calculus of what changes you would want to make? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, 100 percent support the uh, ballot initiative to get medical marijuana on the ballot. I thought what happened in 2020, where the signatures were there and uh, at the last minute, um, the court decided, oh, there's a this is not a single issue ballot. So they kicked it off the ballot. I mean, that's a real, you know, and I think that resulted from political pressure. I I think that's a real issue with democracy. I mean, either we're going to have a system where folks can get um, something on the ballot and have the people vote for it, or we're not. And uh, certainly um, the governor has made it very clear that he's even opposed to medical marijuana. And, you know, honestly, I've certainly, as an attorney, worked with families um, who have kids who suffer from epilepsy, seizures, um, you know, folks uh who are on chemotherapy, who have issues with nausea, you know, everything else. I mean, there's so many people who would benefit from uh, medical marijuana being legalized. Um, you know, I just think it's it's offensive that you have um, a governor who, you know, is going against science and, and making a lot of statements that, that uh, you know, marijuana is going to kill people or what have you. Um, and, and honestly, I feel like the, the county attorney uh, supports that. Um, you know, my understanding is that he's very much opposed to, um, any kind of reform when it comes to sentencing, um, uh, as it relates to marijuana. So yeah, that's a clear policy difference between us. So as we start to get toward the end of our time here today, what are, what are some of the other big issues that we haven't talked about yet that you want to make sure voters know about? Well, sure. I mean, just, uh, I think what we need to do is um, and a big focus of my campaign is the major prison overcrowding crisis that we're facing. Um, again, we're at 150 percent capacity, which has huge implications for public safety on the one hand and just basic civil rights on the other. Um, I think people need to know that the county attorney's office is a major driver of that issue. And if and when I'm elected, on the one hand, I will certainly um, institute policies within my office that will seek alternatives to sentencing for nonviolent offenders and uh, for those who have the best chance of being reformed. I will be a partner with other um, groups in our communities to work on things uh, to help prevent crime, um, you know, whether it's in education, healthcare, uh, food insecurity, housing insecurity, et cetera. Um, I will be a partner um, with those folks. And, um, you know, the, the key thing is that we have a public safety crisis right now with prison overcrowding. And that crisis is being driven by um, the mandatory minimums, the um, the issues where we're just throwing more and more people in prison, people are languishing in prison, they're not getting services in prison, and then they're being really re- released, reoffending, et cetera. I feel like most of those issues are very much uh, issues that um, are the responsibility of the Douglas County attorney. And, uh, you know, when elected, I will, I will change that uh, through direct policies as a uh, county attorney, but also 
using the bully pulpit at the office to advocate um, and partner with other legislators who support criminal justice reform. And so for people who want to learn more or get involved in your campaign, where should where should they go? So I made it easy for folks. My website is DavePantos.com. Um, and you can just go there and sign up to volunteer, to get a yard sign, certainly to give a grassroots contribution to my campaign. Always helpful. Um, and uh, yeah, they can also reach out to me. Dave P at DavePantos.com is my email address. And uh, also I'm in eviction court every Tuesday uh, at the, uh, on the municipal side of the uh, building there, court, courtroom 20, uh, defending tenants who are facing eviction. Um, it's an important um, work. Uh, it is volunteer work, uh, but we've got a great group of attorneys and non-attorney volunteers doing that work. And if you're interested in, in volunteering and helping out and keeping folks from going homeless, uh, yeah, feel free to reach out to me either through those methods or on social media. Well, I appreciate getting to know you as a person, uh, as well as more of the issues and what you're currently focusing, focusing on today. So Dave, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thanks, Tom, and appreciate the opportunity. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. Join the conversation in our Letter to the Editor feature, where you can call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week. Leave a brief voicemail at 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.